Hello, everybody. This is uh, welcome to Politics and the Humanities. This is a podcast from American University. Uh, I'm Tom Merrill, a faculty member in the Department of Government. I'm here with my colleague Sarah Marsh, who Hi, is uh, in the Department of Literature. Uh, hello, Sarah. Hi, everyone. Good to be with uh, you again. And we have a very special guest today, which is uh, uh, my old professor Leon Cass, uh, professor emeritus at the University of Chicago and also now the Dean of the Faculty at Shalem College uh, in Israel. He's the author of this wonderful new book, uh, Founding God's Nation, Reading Exodus, which is a sequel to his book on Genesis, which we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about Exodus, and we're going to be talking about the place of the Hebrew Bible in liberal education. Um, before we launch into the conversation, um, Leon, I have to just say some things. One of the reasons why you're here and one of the reasons, honestly, why I'm here is that I was in your class a long time ago uh, as an undergraduate, a very naive and shy undergraduate at the University of Chicago. I took classes with you and I took classes with um, your wife, Amy Cass, who's now, of course, uh, gone, that was much beloved by many of us. And I just have to tell you, um, that class, I think I took Rousseau with you and uh, the Discourse on Inequality, and I, and I did Genesis with you. And those classes was, um, for me, was kind of like the first time I'd ever really read a book. Um, and um, the first time um, I had realized that uh, a book has layers, that it needs interpretation, that has subtlety, that the author might put things there that uh, he or she wants you to notice, but doesn't put on a billboard. Um, and you know, it was just a sort of a transformational experience for me or a foundational experience for me. Um, I guess I've, I learned how to be sensitive to the difference between what the text says and what the text does. Um, and, um, you know, I, it's important for me to say this, you know, to you, but also to say this to our listeners, because I really think of what I do in the classroom is in many respects trying to um, reenact what it was that I thought happened to me when I took that class with you and with, with other people, right? There's a whole community of people who were really serious about reading books. Um, I have to tell you, sir, that was a gift. Um, that was a gift that, um, you know, I still think about every time I walk into the classroom. So I want to just start by saying thank you. Uh, Tom, thank you very much for that. Um, the gift is repaid by um, seeing um, what's become of that shy young man and to <clears throat> see that he carries on in a splendid way the, uh, the dignified and civil inquiry into the things that matter. It's a great pleasure to be with you in this occasion and to be with you too, Sarah. And I look forward to talking about a book that matters. Thank you very much, Leon and Tom. I'm very moved by that. I have to say when I was reading Founding God's Nation, I was also transported back to the happiest times of my undergraduate uh, experience when uh, I was in a lot of poetry classes and I was I was taught by people who cared a lot about what poetry does and and how how the line matters and what images do um, and how how a work of literature can come alive in one's own mind. Uh, it was it was a very uh, wonderful experience to read the book. Uh, and so I wanted to start the conversation today by by asking you to give our audience an overview of of what this book is about and and what is it intended to do. Oh, well, thank you. Look, um, it's very hard to sort of summarize this 
uh, very complicated and rich book in a few words. But uh, in short, uh, Exodus is the account of the foundation of the nation of Israel. Uh, it um, takes the project that was begun in Genesis with the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in which God tries to found a new way for human life against the ways of human life uninstructed. In Genesis, um, this new way barely defined survives through the three patriarchal generations, barely. But Exodus shows how that, 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 that those families get transformed into a people. And that people formation in Exodus really rests on three pillars. First, you have the story of enslavement in Egypt and the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, which becomes the national story of the people. So the first pillar is a national story of slavery and deliverance. The second pillar is the giving of a law and morality at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments most famously, followed by three chapters of detailed ordinances having to do with what we call crimes and torts, but also things that not only restrain, but also encourage and lift up. And then finally, uh, in the last part of Exodus, the building of the tabernacle, uh, that's a place where um, the people have uh, an opportunity to embody their aspiration to be in touch with what's highest through ritual, worship, and sacrifice. It's a place for expression of gratitude, for atonement in relation to the divine. Um, and these, these three, um, I, I think the thing that's of interest is um, if you read this merely historically or from within the tradition, you could say, ah, this is a book for the people who live by this book. But if you're willing to read it philosophically in a wisdom-seeking spirit, you're invited to think about whether or not um, a nation well-founded needs a common story, needs a common law and morality, and needs something to look up to in a certain ritualized way. And that, I think, is what is of great interest to me in reading this book. And, and so whenever you were, you were conceiving of this project, um, I think it's important for the, the readers to know um, how the, the book you've written works through the text line by line by line. Why is that method of reading important? Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny that you should call it a method of reading. I mean, uh, a colleague of mine was once asked, what's your method uh, of, of reading? He says, I read the whole book. <laughs> and very few people read the book of Exodus as a book. The people whose tradition it is mostly go out in and pick out, <clears throat> excuse me, favorite passages that have religious uh, and, and legal significance for, <clears throat> for the Jewish law. The scholars are mostly interested in what's the origin of this text, what strands came from this source and from that source. But if you think that uh, regardless of the source, the book might have been put together by a single intelligence who knows what he or she is doing in putting this together, uh, then you submit to reading the book and you try to understand from reading it slowly how it's been put together 
and in the hope that by dwelling with it, you will learn from it how it wants to be read and discover what it has to teach you. And you can't decide, ah, this is the important part because it's important to me. You have to really take the whole thing seriously and figure out why is this here and why is this next to this? And to read it, by you suspend your disbelief um, and you put aside your criticisms and try to understand <clears throat> this book in its own terms. You can criticize it later. My this, by the way, is what I do with every book. <clears throat> every book that I teach, I teach that way. My students and I talk a lot about oh, practices me. of practices of charitable reading and what does it mean to to suspend one's reactions to the text long enough to let the text do its work on us. And we live in a in a society that that really privileges instant responses to texts. We're in the midst of all of these platforms all the time where the hot take is the is the way to respond. And so it does feel like a mode that needs to be cultivated right now. I think that students, uh, they don't always understand what I'm asking them to do whenever I just ask them to read and pause and not not react right away. Yeah, that's very important. It's also important in the age of the screen in which uh, nobody has any patience to dwell with anything for a long time and to and to see uh, the longer development of a thought that can't be expressed in 140 characters. I also, by the way, say to the students at the start of every class, um, the, I try to tell them why I'm reading this book. And I say something about what are the issues that I was I picked up this book hoping to get help with. And I say that we're going to read this book in the spirit that um, this book might just contain the most important thing you want to know that you might not otherwise be able to learn unless you get it here. Mm. And um, I have to say that um, in the writing of this Exodus book, the book that I finished writing was not the book I started out to write because the experience that I advertise for my students happened to me in the course of reading this book. And um, that's quite a wonderful thing in, in one's old age uh, to actually be turned around in certain important respects by what one finds. And it has to do, I don't have to be coy about it, it has to do with taking the stuff on the tabernacle seriously. It's 13 chapters of the driest, uh, um, at first glance and second glance, most boring and detailed stuff. But on the principle that this too is crucial to the whole of the book, I had to do diligence to do diligence to do diligence with it. And by doing that, I noticed things I'd never seen before. So, so for our students who are who are listening, I would love to hear you talk more about what it means to do due diligence with a text. How what did that how did that happen for you whenever you were reading Exodus? And how did you understand that your disposition to the text was being changed by the text? Um, well, I mean, I, I could do it with, uh, I, I could do it, for example, um, I'll, I'll take a particular story. Uh, I'll take the story of Moses at the burning bush. Okay. Famous story. It's how God catches Moses. 
Moses is raised as an Egyptian prince uh, in the house of Pharaoh. He's, uh, he's rescued from the river by Pharaoh's daughter. She adopts him, makes her his own child. Uh, we, we're not told peep about what happens to Moses in Pharaoh's house. When he emerges on the world stage, he's in his late teens or early 20s, and he has these adventures, etc., where you see him as a, as a person who cares for injustice and, and has fellow feeling. Um, but um, much later, he's living with his father-in-law in Midian, and there's this burning bush, and Moses turns around to see why the bush that's burning is not consumed. Moses has a philosophical disposition. The patriarchs, none of them asked why. Moses wants to know the cause, and he goes to see with his eyes, and he hopes that he will discover through seeing into the heart of things. And it turns out um, the bush is not transparent, but the bush talks. And Moses is converted from wonder to awe, in one of the most magnificent descriptions of the emergence of the religious passion that you'll find in literature at all. The bush tells him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Take off your shoes, you're on sacred ground. And rather than turn tail to run, Moses somehow stands there at the awe-inspired distance, can't get too close, but I'm still attracted and holds his ground here. And this is a place where my own philosophical impulse to know the cause, and Moses, by the way, then goes on to say, what's your name? I mean, he doesn't say it quite so boldly. He says, when I come to the children of Israel and they say, who sent you? Um, what shall I tell them? Uh, and what's your name? And he says, God answers him, I will be what I will be which is a kind of rebuke for of an ant, a rebuke of a question that seems to want to know the essence here is where a philosophically inclined reader like me is in a way being showed well you know what maybe you should be a little less impatient about this question of knowing exactly who or what this is maybe what you're supposed to do is follow the text and find out who this voice will be from what he says and what he does hereafter. And that began to teach me that I should read God, not according the, the references to God in the text, not according to some preconceived notion that he's omnipotent, omniscient, etc., etc., which the text never says of him, but to read this as a placeholder in which I'm going to be educated in this text along with Moses by following what the story shows me he says and does, and I should forget about the question of his essence or knowing him through and through or seeking the causes of things. And that I should, instead of relying solely on my eyes, I should begin to hearken with my ears and follow the tale. So I, I wonder if we could um, take a step back. So so uh, you've gone in a way to, to maybe the most important question or one of the important questions. Can we take a step back and talk about the, the great antagonist of uh, the, the tradition that the, the nation that's being founded, which is Egypt, right? Egypt also wants to know the causes. Uh, Isn't e that right? E Egypt is in fact, um, the first thing to say is Egypt is the great civilization of the time. 
Egypt is uh, the land of good and plenty. When there's a famine, everybody comes to Egypt because Egypt, as Herodotus tells us, is the gift of the river. They don't rely on rain, but every year the Nile floods and there is plenty. Uh, Egypt is a place uh, not only of of plenty, but um, Egypt is a place of technology and administration. Um, the pyramids are only one sort of emblem of the advanced technological civilization that's there. Um, Egypt is a place which, uh, on the one hand, appears to worship nature gods, and uh, they recognize the all of the various powers of nature which are emblemized uh, in the various gods of Egypt, from the dung beetle to uh, the bull uh, to the frog-headed uh, god, the god of fertility, the bull, the symbol of virility, uh, the scarab, the dung beetle, which arises from dung, is the symbol of immortality. The Egyptians are obsessed with death, and they've got magicians working on reanimation of the pharaohs who are patiently awaiting in their pyramidical tombs for the magicians to get it right. And Egypt is, in addition, ruled by one man as a god. Egypt is a, a techno-despotism in which Pharaoh rules according to his own whim. So, well, so, uh, but uh, I mean, I, I take it that part of what's going on in your reading of, of Exodus is you don't think that that Egypt is simply a long lost civilization, that it represents a human possibility and, and, and so, like, a human possibility that, that has some attractive features or s features that we recognize. Oh, maybe, perhaps. Absolutely. Look, um, uh, actually, on, on my reading, um, the, the ancient civilizations are ancient incarnations of permanent attractive human possibilities. And the two leading ones against which Israel is defined in Exodus, it's Egypt, and in the books that follow, it's Canaan. The Egyptians are a kind of rationalist, technocratic, administratively very successful people that are uh, seem to venerate nature, but in fact are interested in mastering nature in order to control decay and conquer mortality. Uh, with that formulation, I think one can see that Egypt is back. We've got Egyptian strands very powerfully in the United States in our trust of technology, in our pursuit of the conquest of decay, in our pursuit of not only longevity, but even ultimately something approaching bodily immortality. Um, we have uh, the administrative state and rational experts who manage all kinds of things, and there are people who think we don't do this sufficiently. The Canaanites, on the other hand, are an earth-worshipping and very earthy people. Uh, too much rationality, not so important. They give themselves over to the pleasures of the moment. And this is a place where worship embodies orgies and there's unbridled sexuality. And uh, these are, in a way, the two alternatives. And by the way, um, the Canaanites are back. Uh, um, uh, you and I don't live among them, but uh, if you read the newspapers, the newspapers give 
perfectly good account of, of, of their enjoyment of, of the opportunities of the present age. Uh, so, uh, but Egypt is the more important alternative because Israel has to be defined as a people in, out of, and against Egypt. They have to learn to be anti-Egypt before they learn anything else. So, so Egypt is the alternative. It's a, it's the, and, right. it, and in a way, it's the alternative that has to be preserved within the the psychic life of the nation. Exactly. And among right. the things, among the things that are important to know is, first of all, Egypt is a place of xenophobia. Egypt is a place of ceaseless labor and toil for the pharaoh. Egypt is a place where people hoard things against tomorrow. Egypt is a place that controls fertility and uh, tries to master death. Egypt is a place where you've got despotic rule. In contrast, the children of Israel are going to be taught the humane treatment of the stranger. They're reminded over and over again, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Be kind to the stranger, the widows, the orphans, and the poor. Instead of ceaseless labor, they're going to have a day of rest where the lowest of the low are invited to be like God who rested on the seventh day and to have time out from toil for celebration, appreciation. There will be um, plenty. There will be sabbatical year. And the belief is you don't have to hoard against your neighbor, but that there is the opportunity of sharing and, 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 and so on. There is a celebration of procreation. And instead of trying to master death, the way of Israel is transmission of way of life from parents to children to grandchildren. The traditional story and the transmission of a way of life is life's answer to mortality, not more of the same for ourselves. And finally, in place of despotic rule, according to the whim of Pharaoh, you have the rule of law for each and all, and it applies to everyone. I mean, this, this is in a nutshell, would be what, what would be remembered um, and what would be the contrast uh, Egypt is a, is the place to which people like to return. Whenever the going gets tough, the Israelites want to go back. There was at least meat in Egypt, mm-hmm. and the question and part of the difficulty of starting in slavery is it's a lot easier to get the slaves out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the slaves. I mean that's a long project. But- I was going to ask you, Leon, what is the relationship between the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt and and the Egyptian technocracy in the administrative state? Because those two things seem to be mutually constitutive to me. Yeah, I think um, in a way, I mean, if one's reading philosophically, you can say, look, uh, Israel came down into Egypt. They prospered there. They flourished. They became numerous uh, n- numerous and a new pharaoh to consolidate his power kind of made uh, uh, a scapegoat out of them uh, and decided to oppress them, to rally his own people around uh, opposition and fear of the other. Um, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a way uh, through the contest that God and Moses have with Pharaoh in the plagues, um, the 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 text exposes what Egypt really, really means. Yes, it's a land of prosperity. Yes, it's a land of prosperity and technological progress and so on. 
But when push comes to shove, and when you actually push it, it, what you expose in the land is that, in fact, you will have techno-despotic rule, which in the end is willing to sacrifice the well-being of the people for the assertion of its own power. Um, Pharaoh, through the whole sequence of the so-called plagues, everybody else falls away. They see this is terrible for Egypt. Why don't you yield? But Pharaoh, in the end, stands alone. Um, he takes only his own device, advice. He's not going to yield to his courtiers. He's absolutely indifferent to what's happened to his people, but he's going to stick it out to the end and prove that he is masterful. Mm -hmm. And um, what you then see th through this, this whole encounter is the deep meaning of Egypt is a place in fact, I'll say it first, and then I'll give you the really great evidence for it. Egypt turns out to be a place which on the surface looks so attractive. It has everything. It has agriculture. It has technology. It has medicine. It has magic. It has things run smoothly. It has a bureaucracy that manages everything. But um, it turns out that in, as a result of this sequence of plagues and as a result of the intransigent of the leadership, what you get to see about Egypt is that it's built on a false understanding of the world and its politics is in fact hostile to the care of the very people that its leadership is supposed to be looking after. Um, when, just let me, one, one sentence. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God says to the people, I am um, the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And that's a historically true statement in the text. But if you read it philosophically, what he seems to be saying to them is, look, you have two alternatives. They're basically two alternatives. Either you're going to be in relation to me and live under a way which will be uplifting, or you will be as you were before in the house of bondage, in the land of Egypt, in the house. The, the alternatives suggested by the text are either life lived in accordance with, with God and his teaching and his uplifting teaching, or whatever way you live, you're at peril of winding up living in a techno-despotism of the sort you've just experienced. So, um, yeah. I want to ask you more about the sequence of the plagues. Uh, this is the part of the book that I was really captivated by. I, I teach classes at American University about the history of medicine, and I, I had never thought to teach the plagues of Egypt, which is, seems very obvious to me now. But I wanted, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the plagues. So why are the plagues sent in the first place? Why are they sequenced in the way that they are? What do they reveal about Egypt and then the, the role that Moses is playing um, in, in leading the Israelites out of slavery? Okay, you, you may have to help me on this because... Okay. Uh, but um, let's start this way. First of all, um, I don't want to um, undercut the, the, the conversation we're starting by pointing out that um, almost never in the text 
uh, is the word plague used. These things are called, we know them as the 10 plagues, but Pharaoh, uh, but God describes them as signs, wonders, and chastisements, okay? They're, they're um, wonders, wow, signs, oh, what do they mean? And punishments of some sort for something. Only once, I can't remember where exactly, is a word which in Hebrew means hit. Uh, a series of hits uh, is used, and that's the word that could get to be translated as plagues. But that's pedantry, and uh, we'll leave it go. But if you want to know why they're instituted, it's not primarily, it's not only or primarily as punishment, but they're introduced uh, as wonders and signs the ultimate purpose of which is not just to get the Israelites out of Egypt. After all, God could do that without going through this whole process. The purpose of all of this, he says very explicitly, is so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It's a contest about knowledge. Mm. It's a contest that we should come to know what's the world really like. Egypt is built upon a certain view of the world, a certain, on the one hand, naturalism, uh, in which there is no special standing of the human being, and on the other hand, a standing not of the dignified human being, but of the mastering human being who can make nature better do uh, our bidding. So, um, and it's to somehow correct and expose the errors of what the Egyptians think are divine, as well as the limitations of the Egyptian magicians to change nature and to somehow teach the Egyptians what's the world really like, what governs here, and to also expose for everybody what it means to be Pharaoh so that the world will see what that kind of civilization ultimately produces. Can I ask a question? Uh, so. Uh, if it's a contest, if it, I mean, you're, you're presenting it as a kind of um, theological, philosophical contest about the about what the world is really like. Um, but from what you said before, uh, so Moses is talks to God in the burning bush, and he asks God, "What what's your name?" And the answer is um, basically, you, "You won't know, right? I can't. I, I, I will be what I will be." Yeah. Um, so, so what, what's the, what's the, how do you, how do you, can you cash out the, that's not the right phrase, but can, can you explain that the, the Egyptian alternative is the world is controllable, but it's, the Israelite alternative, I mean, what is that? Um, let, maybe we should do a bit of the plagues the way Sarah wanted to do first. Okay. Maybe maybe it'll fall out. No, I mean I mean sure. I'm not ducking the question, but maybe maybe we can work our way to to an answer. Um, uh, the plagues begin. Um, one way to think about the plagues, leaving the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn, alone. But take the first nine plagues and treat them concentrically. The first plague is the turning of the river to blood. And the last plague is darkness in which the sun goes, in which the sun goes absent for three whole days and it's complete darkness. Um, the river and the sun 
are two of the chief gods of Egypt, mm. right? Um, and for perfectly good reasons in an agricultural civilization, the river, water, and the sun, light and warmth are to be venerated. And if I'm an Egyptian before the Bible, I'm on board with those things, right? Um, the, uh, the, first two, the first and last plagues show that there is a power mightier than these two sources, that they are not themselves divine, but are in fact uh, under some other kind of greater control. And they also mock in the treatment of the first plague, turning the river into blood. Um, the river was the place where the children of Israel under Pharaoh's Egypt had been drowned. The boys were to be drowned in the river. Mm -hmm. The river becomes not only in, under Pharaoh's rule, not only a source of life giving, but it turns out to be something deadly. And that teaching, uh, once you see the Egyptian manipulation of the river, the river turns out, in fact, to be a source of death because the water becomes undrinkable. So, so let me ask, but, but it sounds to me, partly what you're saying is that the plagues are uh, speaking to Egypt in language that Egypt understands. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, take the next is the frogs. Uh, the Egypts have a god, uh, Hekmet, who's a frog-headed god. Uh, he's the god of fertility. Um, Pharaoh uh, was not content with sort of trying to do something about mortality, but he tried to control the fertility. And by the way, um, the, the crimes of the tyrant are, as one learns from from things like Oedipus, the crimes of the tyrant uh, are, in fact, uh, incest and patricide. The tyrant wants to live forever and be his own source. The control of death and the control of birth are the things that tyranny aspires to. So Pharaoh is, in a way, already declared himself. Um, you think you can control fertility, Pharaoh? Let me show you. Here's fertility gone crazy, and the frogs are everywhere. The frogs are in your oven. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians can do this, uh, but then um, uh, they can't stop it. They can't undo this kind of thing. What's being mocked here is uh, both the both the belief that for that that this natural good is simply splendid, and that you can also control it. Um, the uh, bull is a very big deal in Egypt. It's not for nothing that when the Israelites get off the reservation, they make a golden calf. It was a memory of what was the virility and power that was crucial in Egypt. Um, and, and the bull is, uh, a young bull is the symbol of, of masculine power and virility. And it's not for nothing that the central of these plagues the boils, uh, the, the, the boils, the cattle disease in the boils begins to affect the animals. The, the locusts, which come later, destroy Egyptian vegetation, the pride of the land. Um, and I'm, I'm not doing this very well because in the book, okay. I separate different ways of analyzing the plagues in groups. On the one hand, there's a certain mockery of the, of the sufficient power of these natural forces. 
In another way, there's a mockery of the technological belief that you can master these forces. In another way, there's a suggestion that Egypt rightly understood will only produce chaos and only God can undo the chaos that he himself here produces. In other words, he produces the chaos through the plagues, but then is able to restore it in a way that the Egyptians can never do. And finally, um, uh, unlike anything that anybody who worshiped nature could ever see, the God of Israel is, has an intellectual discriminatory power. Um, he, he sees to it, for example, that many of the plagues don't strike the land of Goshen where the Israelites are ghettoized. They don't suffer from plagues four through nine. And then in the 10th and final plague, which is the plague of the firstborn, in which he kills the firstborn in every house, what kind of natural power could tell the house of the Egyptians from the houses of the Israelites and distinguish between the firstborn and everybody else? It's a kind but, of proof but, a different power in charge here. Tom, I mean, don't you think, I mean, so, but Leon, if the, if the text ended after the plagues, wouldn't you be tempted to think that the God that's being spoken of here is a, is a super Pharaoh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, right. it's not the, I mean that there's a big danger, right? That this God who can do this amazing thing of seeking out only the firstborn. Correct. Right. Uh, if um, you had only, if you look, and my students always say, and, and this is important to notice, um, Lots of people have used the story of Exodus as a story of national liberation, but the word freedom, the word freedom doesn't occur in the text. They're not be, they're being delivered from slavery, but they're being delivered from slavery to service to a new God. And my students say uh, they've just exchanged one pharaoh for a bigger and stronger pharaoh. So, well, but but even within the text, I mean, so I mean, one question about the plagues is, I mean, it's it's a little, it's a play that that God is putting on, right. uh, for, and the question is for which audience? So partly it's for Pharaoh, partly it's for Egyptians, and, I, and what you said before is that He wants to show the Egyptians the truth about about the world, but it's also for the Israelites. Exactly right, and it's in fact also for Moses. Moses also for Moses, yeah. Moses is the Egyptian who most of all needs to know that this guy who wouldn't tell him his name actually um, will be what he will be this way. So in the course of the plagues, Moses' his own courage and, and his own initiative increases so that the, the story of the plagues actually emboldens Moses. But the most important thing, the, the Israelites, when Moses presented them this story and Pharaoh turned the screws, they say, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't know this God. They reject him completely. If you can bring the Egyptians to bear witness of the superiority of the God of Israel, the Israelites might believe it too. And so... So the um, message has to be conveyed in, in, in as we, uh, we would say, um, uh, intercoder reliability. <laughs> yeah. It has, it, has to be, it has to be accessible to somebody outside of the Israelite nation. And, and if you could bring the greatest civilization uh, around to bear witness, and the witness, is not, the, the witness is not finally born at the end of the 10th plague. Pharaoh, the next morning after he lets them go, decides, and they come and tell him, look, the Israelites have gone away, and poor Pharaoh's in a tough place. I mean, he looks weak. Uh, he's actually told them to go. 
So he pursues them with 600 chariots, and you know they all drown in the, in the Sea of Reeds. The right. last thing you hear out of the mouth of the Egyptians is, it's too late, the, the Lord God of Israel fights for them. The, out of the last word out of the mouths of the drowning Egyptians, the last sentence, gives the name of the God of Israel. Pharaoh at the beginning said, I don't know anybody like that. And this, so at this particular point, it's, it's not the whole story. It's the beginning of the story. The Israelites learn that they're, on their side is a champion whose superiority has been demonstrated before their very eyes and has been given the verbal testimony of the chief civilization of the world that had oppressed them for decades and now, now what? Um, so I have a question about about the now what. Um, whenever the the tenth plague, um, the the death of the firstborn, is exacted against Egypt, um, it is coupled to the Passover, and it seems important to me that these things happen with near simultaneity in the text. Right? It's it's the the dashing of of the dynastic power of Egypt with these hereditary lines being being erased. Um, and at the same time, um, there are instructions for a communal meal um, right. that are that are designed to 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 create something. Um, can yep. you say more about about the the pairing of those two events in Exodus? Yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Look, um, uh, even before they go out, there's a commandment that every year hereafter, you're going to tell the story of going out. Uh, short formulation, the going out is for the sake of the story. Because the story is the foundational piece of nationhood. Every year they reenact their identity as people who exist only thanks to the fact that God took them out of their out of their servitude, so they go out of Egypt not feeling their oats, but um, charged with a perpetual duty to their children and their children's children and their children's children. Remember forever. Remember forever. You were slaves. If it weren't for your deliverance, you might still be slaves. And that this is not the end, but the very beginning of nationhood. Remembrance of slavery, gratitude for deliverance, and uh, a sense of the blessedness of having been delivered and still being here to tell the story. Um, uh, that's, I, I feel badly, and I, you'll allow me just a couple of sentences because I've left the God of Israel at the end with the Egyptians in the water as as the song of the sea says right afterwards as a mighty man of war and um, that looks maybe like yeah well if you want to be on the side of the winning team you might go with that pharaoh rather than the one you left right but it turns out and I don't want to deflect this too much but that's just the beginning they then learn that he's a good provider um, when they're in the desert he provides mana and quail and so on and leads them to water. But most important, he's a lawgiver. He's a teacher. 
And we won't get to it today, but the most important thing after the golden calf, the people learn and Moses learns most importantly, he's a God of forgiveness and, and grace. And that, and that the law that he's given, in fact, is for their elevation, not for his own self-aggrandizement. But in order to get started, he has to, in a way, show them that he can get them out of bondage so that they can begin to be delivered from the bondage that is within their souls, which is really addressed in the coming law and in the ritual and in the practices. And a person who thinks that it's changing one pharaoh for another at the Sea of Reeds will think very differently, even at the end of Exodus, when you see what else I will be, what I will be has in store for you. I mean, part of the problem of the text, it seems to me, is uh, or reading the text is that you have a series of events. It's pre presented as sort of a temporal order in, in just any story. But it's also you're seeing elements of a, of a national character, a national identity. And, and it seems to me, I mean, so um, I mean, maybe this is what, what one thing that you're saying, the danger um, of up to the Sea of Reeds is to think that it is just another, God is another Pharaoh. Um, and that, that, as you said before, getting the, the Egypt out of the Israelites is, is a task that might not be uh, finished or maybe even finishable within this, this text. It's uh, never finished. Uh, what you have are the beginnings. And you have, in a way, the teachings that could help do it. But backsliding um, is, uh, is a permanent human possibility. Um, right away. <laughs> uh, but, the, but the question is, I think what they're shown is not only, by the way, that God is powerful, but he keeps his promise. He's solicitous of his people. He's a God of justice and he punishes injustice. I mean, there, there are things there besides his power that can be attractive to the people who've, who've in a way seen the, the evolution of this. Um, and, and you would say that if, if a person were able to live their life in accord with that sense of the world, that they would, they would lead better, more flour, flourishing lives. Look, I would say, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to preach the text, but um, uh, the book of Exodus and its teachings uh, have, whether we know it or not, have been absolutely indispensable uh, sources of the moral foundation of the West, um, largely through its spread uh, by Christianity. Uh, I mean, the Ten Commandments uh, were until only yesterday um, understood to be foundational teachings. Uh, and um, in addition to the second table, which was not particularly unique to the, uh, to the Israelite way, but the teachings of Sabbath observance and the teaching of honor your father and mother were absolutely indispensable um, for the development of the spirit of the West and uh, on whose moral capital on whose dwindling moral capital, if one might say, we uh, we still uh, we still do as well as we do, um, and uh, you know I think that for people who are interested in 
both learning about where they come from and where their civilization has come from. And by the, yeah, and by the way, great political philosophers uh, in the 17th, 18th century um, read the Hebrew Bible precisely for its political wisdom and the book of Exodus in particular uh, for, for founding. But I think if we're thinking about um, ourselves and our students today, um, is this a book that can be read by us, even by those of us for whom the law is uh, is not binding, uh, on whom the law is not binding? Is, is this something worth our worth our attention? Uh, absolutely. Um, why? Not only because it's a source of who we are, and you don't if you don't know where you came from, you won't understand yourself, but because it remains. Um, a powerful and competing alternative that has teachings for how one should live one's personal life and what a good community would be like. Um, and um, to, to be laid down against Aristotle's politics and Locke's second treatise um, and uh, the New Testament and um, Homer and Shakespeare so let's uh, let's maybe this might seem like a digression from the things we've been talking about, but I think I think that it touches on many themes that that are in what you've just said and what are in the book. Um, and so maybe I can preface. I'll ask you a question, but I'll just preface this with an observation that um, one time this was probably 15 years ago uh, when I was teaching at St. John's College. I, I had this. Um, it, insight that that uh, a class is a kind of um, ritual that there's a kind of form in in this sense not that that we're a shared religious community in in any way but but um, but that I mean I think I'm talking here just for this the moment about um, seminar classes where we get together around a table and we we read a text together but that's um, I think you know the three of us as teachers know there's something that is magical that happens. Uh, sometimes in a classroom, right? It doesn't always happen that uh, sometimes you you show up and you go through the motions and, and there's no spark there, but other times there is something that's really special. And it occurred to me that that the forms that we have of how we prepare for class, how the class is set up, um, uh, that just the architecture of the room, that all of these are things that are um, meant to put us in a position where something special could happen. Right, something that um, that we're we're trying to put ourselves in harm's way, uh, so to speak, and and from from everything from um, when we prepare, we, you know, we make a list of texts of passages that we're puzzled by or have questions by. We we make a list of questions, we bring it, um, and but also uh, so formal things like that, but also the spirit in which we come to a class that we come with a with a sense of wanting to hear what other people have to say. It's not a debate after all; it's a it's a conversation. Um, so maybe I could uh, ask you to, to talk about this for a second. Um, at American University, we have a lot of classrooms that are set up on what I think of as the solar system model, where the instructor stands in front of the students, and the students are often in concentric circles. So I'm not sure if it's like this in your building. It's just like this in my building. We don't um, have but, very big classrooms uh, over in Battelle, but I, I have been in the classrooms you're talking about. Uh, and but can Leon, can you talk a little bit about the the difference in architecture between that model and and uh, a seminar table? Like what what difference? What's at stake in that difference? Oh, everything, everything. Um, uh, I, I 
what, what you say, Tom, is really beautiful. And um, I, I learned something from you just this moment uh, in the comparison. The, the, the tacit comparison is the classroom to a sanctuary. Um, you didn't want it to be so heavy handed, but I'll make it heavy handed in that way. Um, I, I've always regarded going into class as something like a sacred space. And I don't, um, sacred with an asterisk, I don't confuse myself with the high priest. And I don't confuse what we're doing in there with worship. But we are in a way um, gathered tacitly, nobody has to say it, but to sit around the table and to treat each other as members of a communing, of a communing community. Um, what we hope will happen when we do that, whether we say so or not, is that this invisible thing which is in the middle of the room toward which we aspire will appear in the form of insight, in the form of illumination, and that it will be shared and it will be the product of the contributions that each of us has made one to the other by doing what Sarah called not only charitable reading of the text, but charitable reading of each other. Um, that you in a way come in a spirit of graciousness and there could be a gracing of that moment with a kind of discovery, illumination. Um, and boy, when it happens, when it happens, it's out of this world. I mean, it really, it really is. And it's, it's not unlike the kind of experience one might have on a very rare and good day in a, in a circumstance of worship where somehow the singing is just right and the community is all together. And you don't know whether what you've experienced is what people say is the indwelling presence of, of, of the Lord who's supposed to be there. I have no idea whether that's what's meant, but something out of the ordinary can happen in a classroom. And by the way, the virtues are practicable in the classroom. The virtues of courage to try out and not to be afraid, but that depends upon the other virtue of generosity of spirit to receive what somebody has offered uh, at some ex risk of exposure. Um, the, vir the virtue of of fairness um, to make way and to see that other people get get their turn. Um, there are all kinds of, it, it can't be a substitute for what the Bible has to teach because the classroom isn't the world. Uh, and there's other parts of life where other kinds of rules uh, and, and teachings are important, but there is a community of conversation um, which is um, one of the most precious things in the world. And to be a teacher who can bring such a thing into being and to do it over the deep questions that every young person and every old person cares about, that's, that's blessed work. So it's, uh, it occurs to me, uh, I mean, to, to bring it back to the classroom for a second, um, one of the ironies of our situation is that we live in institutions that talk 
all day long about uh, social justice, about equality, and yet we have a way of continuing to reproduce hierarchy, yeah. right? And and the, we one sees it in the classroom, right? That that's uh, I mean one could one could talk about the what the the other model, right? The the model, the solar system model that there's um, there's a real temptation for instructors to become a kind of stand up comedian or an entertainer, um, which is which is very tempting, right? Especially when you have things to say, right? As well, and, we, and we all have things to say. Look, and it is a temptation. You 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 feel a certain obligation to the books. You feel an obligation not to shortchange them, and it's a tough to strike the balance. Um, but um, and I, I mean, this is one of the reasons why. I mean, to undercut the to undercut the inequality of rank. It was one of the reasons why uh, Mrs. Cass and I would refer to each other um, by. I'm Mr. Cass, she's Mrs. Cass. We would teach together sometimes, and we refer to our students as Mr. or Ms. You were Mr. Merrill, you would be Ms. Marsh, um, and we'd ask the students to refer to each other in the same way. This was a way right. of of making it clear this was not an ordinary, informal, free-for-all kind of place. Our conversation was going to be different, but we were also signaling that with respect to what goes on here, we're going to try as much as possible to level the inequalities in terms of what we call one another, in terms of the way we speak to one another, that I don't have special authority in here. Yes, I've convened the class. Yes, I made the assignment. But once we start talking, I want to hear from you. And the table, uh, the table is, um, it's, it's the symbol of uh, everybody has one seat at the table. And uh, I almost never got up. I mean, I'd write an assignment on the board, but uh, I never got up from my seat because to get up from your seat, no student can get up from their seat to say what they have to say. So I say seated. And I tried in, in, by all of these, and in a way it wasn't thought out. It was just a kind of tacit built-in understanding how are you going to create the kind of climate in which um, everybody's equal in this room with respect to the thing we're interested in, which is the truth about the question under discussion? What also seems to me, uh, maybe the formality allows a kind of openness in the conversation in the sense that you're not sure. So you might have a, a an idea of how a conversation will go. But when you actually get in the room with people, human beings have their own minds and hearts and you know, things on their mind. Um, but that, but that it's a, it's a way of trying to preserve that sense of openness to something that we can't control. Yeah. No, they're the, the students are not chess pieces to be moved around by the chess master. Um, they have, they, and many, many has been a time where something really good erupted in the class where two, uh, two students went at it. Um, I mean, and I just put away my notes. I said, this is good. Continue. I, you know, I always think, I mean, it's an amazing thing about teaching is that students don't know when they've said something smart. Yeah. And they, but they, they say smart things more often than they think. <laughs> Look, that, that's, that's another, and we've talked about this. Um, and in this climate today, 
in this climate today, it's even more important than before. Um, the one, one should treat the students always as if they were better than they think they are. And um, my wife was wonderful at it. They would say something and she would say, another sentence, please. And it was, it was daunting to them, but nobody refused because it was the expression, I think you're onto something. Um, you have more in there than you've already said. Find it. It was invitational in that sense. I remember being on the receiving end of that <laughs> many times. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so. Um, but uh, nothing quite so terrifying as the the another sentence. <laughs> it's um, but part of the reasons that things are so angry on campuses is um, the great things that are supposed to happen in the classroom with the books and the questions and the conversations are all too rare. If people were getting their souls nurtured in the room and being shown that the deep questions in their souls had an outlet and that they were going to have company and their faculty was in fact going to make room for it and not just profess at them, but in nurture the conversation freely so every voice can be heard and respected, um, the educational task would be better and the anger would be toned down. At least that's my strong sense. So let's, let's, let's ask one last question since we're coming close to the end of our time. Um, so Sarah and I have been working this year with a group of faculty from around the university and there are, and I, you know, many of Leon, our mutual friends are so down about the university that they would like to destroy it. Um, uh, but my experience is there are many more, uh, people who are open to this kind of thing, who care about the things that we care about um, across the university, many more than, than you would expect, that, that the university is better than sometimes it, it feels like. Um, and we're trying to put together a, we will, it's been, it's been approved, we'll, we'll teach a, a common class with a common list of books, uh, each in our own way from our different disciplinary points of view or in our different political, philosophical points of view. Um, but we're going to have a common set of texts. That that's really the, the key thing. And we're going to try to teach all at the same in the same semester, so that we can all be part of a common conversation. Um, and one of, the, as, as you can imagine, part of the challenge to that is picking books that we can all live with, right? Which of course is is not a small thing. Um, and so, so the question for you is. Um, what should we say to our colleagues if, if you know, uh, what would you say? Why should, why should we include some part of the, the Hebrew Bible in that project? Um, well, two things. I mean, one, uh, both on, on both grounds. First of all, uh, and I would think probably if you're going to try to sell this to colleagues, You'd, Genesis would be an easier sell than Exodus. Uh, after all, there aren't 13 chapters on building the tabernacle. <laughs> Genesis is filled with wonderful stories that almost teach themselves. Uh, but the Hebrew Bible is one of the um, one of the founding texts of the West. And if we, uh, I don't know if one can use that kind of an argument, but we are, like it or not, children of a civilization of which the Bible is one of the founding strands. 
and um, to know ourselves might be it might be worthwhile having a look at where it began. Um, second, uh, the the Bible has an anthropology, uh, an account of the human being, um, uh, of the human psyche, uh, in all of its moral ambiguity, uh, told not as a treatise but told through stories. And stories are a wonderful way of getting the same kind of thing that you can get at reading Platonic dialogues or Aristotle's ethics. And that these are, these are deep stories that are very illuminating, not just of what might have happened once long ago, but what might happen always uh, absent other kind of instruction. Um, can I ask, Leon, uh, you, um, I mean, you think these texts have a have a human wisdom about what what we are like, what human beings are like. Uh, it may not just be only that, right? But but one could read these texts and come to understand something more about ourselves, right? Our desire for justice, our desire to punish, our desire for a certain kind of purity, right? And I, I'm thinking here, one you know, on campus, the cancel culture is a, is a thing, right? People get angry at each other. But you might see in these texts some reflection on those parts of us that are otherwise undiscussed by a society that says getting a job is the most important thing. You know, absolutely. I think, um, look, um, how did I start reading the Bible? I wasn't raised on it. Uh, I started reading it when my wife and I and four other colleagues designed a course called Human Being and Citizen around the question, what is a good human being and what is a good citizen and what to think if the two were not identical. And we put together a reading list for half the students' time in their first year, full year course, and uh, couldn't teach a full year course on the question of what is a good human being and a good citizen without including some Bible. So we taught Genesis and Exodus um, my wife taught Genesis in the humanities part of the course, and I taught Exodus in the social science part of the course. We sat in each other's class. We taught the, the book of Matthew. Uh, we taught the gospel of Matthew. There was a Christian text. This was part of a long thing that began with the Iliad and finished with war and peace. Uh, but um, And it was only by starting to teach this that I began to see, ah, this is a book that actually speaks not only to believers who've signed on the dotted line to begin with. And over the dinner table and talking about these stories over years, I got hooked on this. I mean, I got hooked on this because I learned deep things about permanent human features. The story of the Garden of Eden, the story of the Garden of Eden, you could have a whole class on for 20 weeks. I have maybe a comment that has a question in it. It seems to me that we are now, school is happening now in a highly technologized atmosphere. The classroom that we are talking about does not exist right now because of a plague. And right. it seems to me that we are going to be in position next year or in 18 months or when things return to normal in, in scare quotes to remake this world. Um, what is the role of liberal education in, in remaking the world on the flip side of this pandemic? Um, look, this is, uh, 
it's going to be a long time before I think we discover what the meaning of this plague is for us. Um, right now, we're too much suffering under its uh, weight. And no one suffers more than the people who are in school. And I don't mean just the young, but I mean also college students who um, live off each other when they come to class and they can't do that on the screen. Um, they might be learning a lesson from all of this about the dehumanization of life lived on the screen altogether and crave the company of three-dimensional flesh and blood human beings that can be hugged and smiled at uh, without getting in trouble with the, uh, um, with the authorities for this expression of normal human affections. But um, look, uh, the loss of human speech, the loss of face-to-face, um, there's the most, one of the most beautiful passages in Exodus. It's said of Moses that he spoke with God as with a friend face to, God spoke with him as with a friend face to face. That there's the possibility of speaking face to face about the things that matter. Um, if we haven't learned the absolute, um, uh, spectacular worth of that in the course of this time. Um, we haven't learned anything. The plague, in a way, you could say, is a kind of wake-up call to the trust in technology. Yes, thank God for the Operation Warp Speed and for the gifts of science, but um, uh, it's, in a way, also held up a mirror to the way we've been living to the things that we've taken for granted, to the things that we've been willing to sell short for the sake of convenience, prosperity, uh, and, and so on. And the Egypt story, in a way, tells us, it raises the question, can uh, technological progress and prosperity and the private pursuit of our pleasures really um, substitute for a life in which we live among people who have a shared story, who have a kind of shared morality, and who get together, whether in classroom or in place of worship, ritually to affirm things that are higher. Um, we're missing those things. People are missing being able to worship, just there's being a, they're missing being able to be in class with their fellows. And boy, if I were in your place, I would hit the ground running next fall, and I would um, I would make sure that they know what a real blessing it is to have the two of you in class to be talking about these books with them. Well, uh, Leon, I'm afraid that we're coming close to the end of our time. Um, there's more to be said. Uh, I think what was it that we got to the, uh, the place and the, the sea of reeds and we said, now what? And, uh, which is maybe the, the continual question, maybe we should say now what, uh, as we, as we end this conversation, um, Leon, it's, it's a blessing to us to have you talk to us and to be the person that you've, that you are. 
So um, I just, I just want to say again, um, thank you for that. And um, let me say that um, I'm not one of the people who gives up on the universities because the young people who come up, God knows how the culture tosses them up, but they come hungry for meaning. They want a life that makes sense. And um, it's just very encouraging to me to have spent this time with two people um, who will help them do it and who haven't given up. So blessings on both of you and your work. The, The encouragement has been mutual. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thanks very much.